Section 23 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 27, The Invasion of the Crimea, Part 1. England then and France entered the war as allies. Lord Raglan, formerly Lord Fitzroy Somerset, an old pupil of the great Duke in the Peninsular War, and who had lost his right arm serving under Wellington at Waterloo, was appointed to command the English forces. Marshal Saint-Arnaud, a bold, brilliant soldier of fortune, was entrusted by the Emperor of the French with the leadership of the soldiers of France. The Allied forces went out to the east and assembled at Varna on the Black Sea shore, from which they were to make their descent on the Crimea. The war, meantime, had gone badly for the Emperor of Russia in his attempt to crush the Turks. The Turks had found in Omar Pasha a commander of remarkable ability and energy, and they had in one or two instances received the unexpected aid and counsel of clever and successful Englishmen. A singularly brilliant episode in the opening part of the war was the defense of the earthworks of Silistra on the Bulgarian bank of the Danube by a body of Turkish troops under the direction of two young Englishmen, Captain Butler of the Ceylon Rifles and Lieutenant Naismith of the East India Company's service. These young soldiers had voluntarily undertaken the danger and responsibility of the defense. Butler was killed, but the Russians were completely foiled and had to raise the siege. At Giorgio and other places the Russians were likewise repulsed, and the invasion of the Danubian provinces was already to all intents a failure. Mr. Kinglake and other writers have argued that but for the ambition of the Emperor of the French and the excited temper of the English people, the war might well have ended then and there. The Emperor of Russia had found, it is contended, that he could not maintain an invasion of European Turkey. His fleet was confined to its ports in the Black Sea, and there was nothing for him but to make peace. But we confess we do not see with what propriety or wisdom the Allies, having entered on the enterprise at all, could have abandoned it at such a moment and allowed the Tsar to escape thus merely scotched. However brilliant and gratifying the successes obtained against the Russians, they were but a series of what might be called outpost actions. They could not be supposed to have tested the resources of Russia or weakened her strength. They had humbled and vexed her just enough to make her doubly resentful and no more. It seems impossible to suppose that such trivial disasters could have affected in the slightest degree the historic march of Russian ambition, supposing such a movement to exist. If we allow the purpose with which England entered the war to be just and reasonable, then we think the instinct of the English people was sound and true, which would have refused to allow Russia to get off with one or two trifling checks, and to nurse her wrath and keep her vengeance waiting for a better chance some other time. The Allies went on. They sailed from Varma for the Crimea, nearly three months after the raising of the siege of Silistra. There is much discussion as to the original author of the project for the invasion of the Crimea. The Emperor Napoleon has had it ascribed to him. So has Lord Palmerston, so has the Duke of Newcastle, so, according to Mr. Kinglake, has the Times newspaper. It does not much concern us to know in whom the idea originated, 
but it is of some importance to know that it was essentially a civilian's and not a soldier's idea it took possession almost simultaneously so far as we can observe of the minds of several statesmen and it had a sudden fascination for the public the emperor nicholas had raised and sheltered his black sea fleet at sebastopol that fleet had sailed forth from sebastopol to commit what was called the massacre of sinope sebastopol was the great arsenal of russia it was the point from which turkey was threatened from which it was universally believed the embodied ambition of russia was one day to make its most formidable effort of aggression within the fence of its vast sea forts the fleet of the black sea lay screened from the moment when the vessels of england and france entered the euxine the russian fleet had withdrawn behind the curtain of these defences and was seen upon the open waves no more if therefore sebastopol could be taken or destroyed it would seem as if the whole material fabric put together at such cost and labour for the execution of the schemes of russia would be shattered at a blow there seemed a dramatic justice in the idea it could not fail to commend itself to the popular mind mr kinglake has given the world an amusing picture of the manner in which the dispatch of the duke of newcastle ordering the invasion of the crimea for it really amounted to an order was read to his colleagues in the cabinet it was a dispatch of the utmost importance for the terms in which it pressed the project on lord raglan really rendered it almost impossible for the commander-in-chief to use his own discretion it ought to have been considered sentence by sentence word by word it was read mr kinglake affirms to a number of cabinet ministers most of whom had fallen fast asleep the day was warm he says the dispatch was long the reading was somewhat monotonous most of those who tried to listen found the soporific influence irresistible as sam weller would have said poppies were nothing to it the statesman fell asleep and there was no alteration made in the dispatch all this is very amusing and it is we believe true enough that at the particular meeting to which mr kinglake refers there was a good deal of nodding of sleepy heads and closing of tired eyelids but it is not fair to say that these slumbers had anything to do with the subsequent events of the war the reading of the dispatch was purely a piece of formality for the project it was to recommend had been discussed very fully before and the minds of most members of the cabinet were finally made up the twenty eighth of june eighteen fifty four was the day of the slumbering cabinet but lord palmerston had during the whole of the previous fortnight at least been urging on the cabinet and on individual members of it separately the duke of newcastle in especial the project of an invasion of the crimea and an attempt on sebastopol with all the energy and strenuousness of his nature he had been urging this by arguments in the cabinet by written memoranda for the consideration of each member of the cabinet separately and by long earnest letters addressed to particular members of the cabinet many of these documents of the existence of which mr kinglake was doubtless not aware when he set down his vivacious and satirical account of the sleeping cabinet have since been published the plan had also been greatly favoured and much urged by the emperor of the french before the day of the sleep of the statesman indeed as has been said already he receives from many persons the credit of having originated it 
the plan therefore good or bad was thoroughly known to the cabinet and had been argued for and against over and over again before the duke of newcastle read aloud to drowsy ears the dispatch recommending it to the commander-in-chief of the british forces in the field the perusal of the dispatch was mere form it would indeed have been better if the most wearied statesman had contrived to pay a full attention to it but the want of such respect in no wise affected the policy of the country it is a pity to have to spoil so amusing a story as mr kinglake's but the commonplace truth has to be told that the invasion of the crimea was not due to the crotchet of one minister and the drowsiness of all the rest the invasion of the crimea however was not a soldier's project it was not welcomed by the english or the french commander it was undertaken by lord raglan out of deference to the recommendations of the government and by marshal saint arnaud out of deference to the emperor of the french and because lord raglan too did not see his way to decline the responsibility of it the allied forces were therefore conveyed to the southwestern shore of the crimea and effected a landing in Kalamita bay a short distance north of the point at which the river alma runs into the sea sebastopol itself lies about thirty miles to the south and then more southward still divided by the bulk of a jutting promontory from sebastopol is the harbour of balaclava the disembarkation began on the morning of september fourteenth eighteen fifty four it was completed on the fifth day and there were then about twenty seven thousand english thirty thousand french and seven thousand turks landed on the shores of catherine the great's crimea the landing was effected without any opposition from the russians on september nineteenth the allies marched out of their encampments and moved southward in the direction of sebastopol they had a skirmish or two with a reconnoitring force of russian cavalry and cossacks but they had no business of genuine war until they reached the nearer bank of the alma the russians in great strength had taken up a splendid position on the heights that fringed the other side of the river the allied forces reached the alma about noon on september twentieth they found that they had to cross the river in the face of the russian batteries armed with heavy guns on the highest point of the hills or bluffs of scattered artillery and of dense masses of infantry which covered the hills the russians were under the command of prince menshikoff it is certain that prince menshikoff believed his position unassailable and was convinced that his enemies were delivered into his hands when he saw the allies approach and attempt to effect the crossing of the river he had allowed them of deliberate purpose to approach thus far he might have attacked them on their landing or on their two days march toward the river but he did not choose to do anything of the kind he had carefully sought out a strong and what he considered an impregnable position he had found it as he believed on the south bank of the alma and there he was simply biding his time his idea was that he could hold his ground for some days against the allies with ease that he would keep them there play with them until the great reinforcements he was expecting could come to him and then he would suddenly take the offensive and crush the enemy he proposed to make of the alma and its banks the grave of the invaders but with characteristic arrogance and lack of care he had neglected some of the very precautions which were essentially necessary to secure any position however strong he had not taken the pains to make himself certain 
that every easy access to his position was closed against the attack of the enemy the attack was made with desperate courage on the part of the allies but without any great skill of leadership or tenacity of discipline it was rather a pell-mell sort of fight in which the headlong courage and the indomitable obstinacy of the english and french troops carried all before them at last a study of the battle is of little profit to the ordinary reader it was an heroic scramble there was little coherence of action between the allied forces but there was happily an almost total absence of generalship on the part of the russians the soldiers of the czar fought stoutly and stubbornly as they have always done but they could not stand up against the blended vehemence and obstinacy of the english and french the river was crossed the opposite heights were mounted prince menchikoff's great redoubt was carried the russians were driven from the field the allies occupied their ground the victory was to the western powers indeed it would not be unfair to say that the victory was to the english the french did not take that share in the heat of the battle which their strength and their military genius might have led men to expect saint arnaud their commander-in-chief was in wretched health on the point of death in fact he was in no condition to guide the battle a brilliant enterprise of general bosquet was ill-supported and had nearly proved a failure and prince napoleon's division got hopelessly jammed up and confused perhaps it would be fairer to say that in the confusion and scramble of the whole affair we were more lucky than the french if a number of men are rushing headlong and in the dark towards some distant point one may run against an unthought-of obstacle and fall down and so lose his chance while his comrade happens to meet with no such stumbling-block and goes right on perhaps this illustration may not unfairly distribute the parts taken in the battle it would be superfluous to say that the french fought splendidly where they had any real chance of fighting but the luck of the day was not with them on all sides the battle was fought without generalship on all sides the bravery of the officers and men was worthy of any general our men were the luckiest they saw the heights they saw the enemy there they made for him they got at him they would not go back and so he had to give way that was the history of the day the big scramble was all over in a few hours the first field was fought and we had won the russians ought to have been pursued they themselves fully expected a pursuit they retreated in something like utter confusion eager to put the kachka river which runs south to the alma and with a somewhat similar course between them and the imaginary pursuers had they been followed to the kacha they might have been all made prisoners or destroyed but there was no pursuit lord raglan was eager to follow up the victory but the french had as yet hardly any cavalry and marshal saint arnaud would not agree to any further enterprise that day lord raglan believed that he ought not to persist and nothing was done the russians were unable at first to believe in their good fortune it seemed to them for a long time impossible that any commanders in the world would have failed under conditions so tempting to follow a flying and disordered enemy except for the bravery of those who fought the battle was not much to boast of the allies together considerably outnumbered the russians although from the causes we have mentioned the englishmen were left throughout the greater part of the day to encounter an enemy numerically superior posted on difficult and commanding heights 
but it was the first great battle which for nearly forty years our soldiers had fought with a civilized enemy the military authorities in the country were well disposed to make the most of it at this distance of time it is almost touching to read some of the heroic contemporaneous descriptions of the great scramble of the alma it might almost seem as if in the imaginings of the enthusiastic historians englishmen had never mounted heights and defeated superior numbers before the sublime triumphs against every adverse condition which had been won by the genius of a marlborough or a wellington could not have been celebrated in language of more exalted dithyrambic pomp the gallant medley on the banks of the alma and the fruitless interval of inaction that followed it were told of as if men were speaking of some battle of the gods very soon however a different note came to be sounded the campaign had been opened under conditions differing from those of most campaigns that went before it science had added many new discoveries to the art of war literature had added one remarkable contribution of her own to the conditions amid which campaigns were to be carried on she had added the special correspondent the old-fashioned historiographer of wars travelled to please sovereigns and minister to the self-conceit of conquerors the modern special correspondent had a very different purpose he watched the movements of armies and criticised the policy of generals in the interests of some journal which for its part was concerned only for the information of the public no favour that courts or monarchs could bestow was worthy a moment's consideration in the mind even of the most selfish proprietor of a newspaper when compared with the reward which the public could give to him and to his paper for quick and accurate news and trustworthy comment the business of the special correspondent has grown so much since the crimean war that we are now inclined to look back upon the war correspondence of those days almost as men did upon the old-fashioned historiographer the war correspondent now scrawls his dispatches as he sits in his saddle under the fire of the enemy he scrawls them with a pencil noting and describing each incident of the fight so far as he can see it as coolly as if he were describing a review of volunteers in hyde park and he contrives to send off his narrative by telegraph before the victor in the field has begun to pursue or has settled down to hold the ground he won and the war correspondent's story is expected to be as brilliant and picturesque in style as it ought to be exact and faithful in its statements in the days of the crimea things had not advanced quite so far as that the war was well on before the submarine telegraph between varma and the crimea allowed of daily reports but the feats of the war correspondent then filled men's minds with wonder when the expedition was leaving england it was accompanied by a special correspondent from each of the great daily papers of london the times sent out a representative whose name almost immediately became celebrated mr william howard russell the preux chevalier of war correspondence in that day as mr archibald forbes of the daily news is in this mr russell rendered some service to the english army and to his country however which no brilliancy of literary style would alone have enabled him to do it was to his great credit as a man of judgment and observation that being a civilian who had never before seen one puff of war smoke he was able to distinguish between the confusion inseparable from all actual levying of war and the confusion that comes of distinctly bad administration to the unaccustomed eye of an ordinary civilian the whole progress of a campaign 
the development of a battle, the arrangements of the commissariat appear at any moment of actual pressure to be nothing but a mass of confusion. He is accustomed in civil life to find everything in its proper place, and every emergency well provided for. When he is suddenly plunged into the midst of a campaign, he is apt to think that everything must be going wrong, or else he assumes contentedly that the whole is in the hands of persons who know better than he, and that it would be absurd on his part to attempt to criticize the arrangements of the men whose business it is to understand them. Mr. Russell soon saw that there was confusion, and he had the soundness of judgment to know that the confusion was that of a breaking-down system. Therefore, while the fervor of delight in the courage and success of our army was still fresh in the minds of the public at home, while every music-hall was ringing with the cheap rewards of valor in the shape of popular glorifications of our commanders and our soldiers, the readers of the times began to learn that things were faring badly indeed with the conquering army of the Alma. The ranks were thinned by the ravages of cholera. The men were pursued by cholera to the very battlefield, Lord Raglan himself said. No system can charm away all the effects of climate, but it appeared only too soon that the arrangements made to encounter the indirect and inevitable dangers of a campaign were miserably inefficient. The hospitals were in a wretchedly disorganized condition. Stores of medicines and strengthening food were decaying in places where no one wanted them or could well get at them while men were dying in hundreds among our tents in the Crimea for lack of them. The system of clothing, of transport, of feeding, of nursing, everything had broken down. Ample provisions had been got together and paid for, and when they came to be needed no one knew where to get at them. The special correspondent of the Times and other correspondents continued to din these things into the ears of the public at home. Exaltation began to give way to a feeling of dismay. The patriotic anger against the Russians was changed for a mood of deep indignation against our own authorities and our own war administration. It soon became apparent to everyone that the whole campaign had been planned on the assumption that it was to be like the career of the hero whom Byron laments, brief, brave, and glorious. Our military authorities here at home, we do not speak of the commanders in the field, had made up their minds that Sebastopol was to fall like another Jericho at the sound of the war-trumpet's blast. Our commanders in the field were, on the contrary, rather disposed to overrate than to underrate the strength of the Russians. It was, therefore, something like the condition of things described in Macaulay's ballad. Those behind cried forward, those in front called back. It is very likely that if a sudden dash had been made at Sebastopol by land and sea, it might have been taken almost at the very opening of the war. But the delay gave the Russians full warning, and they did not neglect it. On the third day after the Battle of the Alma, the Russians sank seven vessels of their Black Sea fleet at the entrance of the harbor of Sebastopol. This was done full in the sight of the Allied fleets, who at first, misunderstanding the movements going on among the enemy, thought the Russian squadron was about to come out from their shelter and try conclusions with the western ships but the real purpose of the Russians became soon apparent. Under the eyes of the Allies, the seven vessels slowly settled down and sank in the water, until at last only the tops of their masts were to be seen, and the entrance of the harbor was barred as by sunken rocks against any approach of an enemy's ship. There was an end, 
to every dream of a sudden capture of sebastopol end of section twenty three